Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should, feel, should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, if you're new to the church or you're here for the first time, um, we don't talk about this stuff all the time. Uh, this is not what we uh, focus on. But what we do do is we work through uh, books of the Bible. And when things come up that are a bit more tricky or difficult to deal with, um, we don't skip over them uh, because they're too difficult. We, we, we tackle them. We deal with them. So we, uh, we, we look at every uh, every aspect of, of scripture. And uh, today we're looking at marriage and singleness. So um, when I was in the Royal Marines, it was a fairly unique environment, a uh, large group of young men, many of whom were single. Uh, some had girlfriends, others were married. Um, a fair few were divorced. And uh, the collective morality around uh, sex marriage and relationships was a very confusing and messed up picture. Uh, among those with wives and girlfriends, there were some good, solid, faithful men. Uh, but there was also a lot of promiscuity and unfaithfulness and debased sexual behavior. So in general, I'd say uh, there was a, a fairly warped perspective on sex, marriage, and relationships. And uh, I often used to hear the most terrible advice. So, you know, someone maybe had an argument with his wife, and the advice would be, well, come out drinking with the lads, yeah, as if that is going to uh, make things better. 
uh, often used to hear things like, what she doesn't know won't hurt her. Or another one that was uh, frequently heard, never underestimate the power of denial. Uh, one guy told me that uh, he'd been unfaithful on uh, one occasion because um, if his wife was unfaithful, at least he'd have something to come back at her with. And he was kind of recommending that as the way to go. So all kinds of nonsense, really bad. Uh, when I'd left the Marines, I randomly bumped into a guy in Rio, in Brazil, who I'd served with in 4-5 uh, Commando. And he was earning a lot of money on the uh, private security circuit. And he had decided that Brazilian girls weren't for him. And so he was on the next flight to uh, Stockholm in Sweden. Just bizarre behavior. And I think uh, probably motivated uh, by a deep sense of loneliness. Probably the worst relationship advice you could ever get would be from a group of Royal Marines. But that is just an extreme microcosm of our culture, which also has a warped perspective on sex, marriage, and relationships. Uh, so where do we get a right perspective on this stuff? Where do we go to get good advice? Well, Paul devotes a sizable chunk of his first letter to the Corinthians uh, to this very subject. The culture in Corinth was even more messed up than our own. And a lot of immoral and crazy ideas were seeping into the church. Uh, it was a confused and muddled picture. And it seems that the church or someone in the church had written to Paul about this. Because in verse 1, he says, Now for the matters you wrote about. So they've written to him about these subjects. And Paul is replying to their culturally specific questions, but his advice is universal. It's just as applicable to us as it was to them. And he addresses those who are married, single, divorced, and widowed. And so I think all of us here would fall into at least one of those categories. So from Paul's letter, from Paul's letter, we're going to try and identify the kind of questions that the Corinthians were asking. We'll look at the cultural situation in Corinth, Corinth to see uh, why those questions arose in the first place. And then we'll look at uh, what the world, what our culture would have to say on these matters. And we'll compare that with what Paul has to say. And I've identified three key questions and they might seem like strange questions. When we look at the culture in Corinth, you'll begin to see why maybe these questions were being asked. But the, the three questions that I've identified is, uh, is sex bad? Is it better to remain single? And should believers divorce their unbelieving spouses? Now, they probably didn't couch their questions in those terms, but this is a, like a distilled version of what we can infer from the response that Paul has given. So firstly, is sex bad? What could have given rise to this question? Well, the Corinthians lived in a culture where they saw God's good gift of sex being abused all the time. Uh, temple prostitution was widely practiced. That means that uh, worshippers would go to the temple and sleep with a prostitute as part of their worship to pagan gods. 
there was uh, organized orgies. There was uh, uh, marital unfaithfulness all over the place. It was a really decadent place. And it seems that uh, some in the church realized that uh, Satan was using uh, sex and sexual desire to lead the people of Corinth astray, to corrupt them. And so they thought that maybe it was better to avoid sex altogether. Maybe sex itself was the problem. That's what they're thinking. So that's one issue. Another issue is that some uh, held to the idea that our spiritual nature is superior to our physical nature, kind of like an early form of Gnosticism. Uh, The Gnostics asserted that our spirits are trying to break away from this corrupt human body. They thought that when we die, our spirits go floating off and our our bodies are are no more. But as Christians, we believe in in physical bodily resurrection. So we're complete uh, beings. Uh, But they believe that one spirit can only be truly free when it gets away from, when it's separated from this dreadful uh, human physical body. Uh, The Gnostics had a very low view of the body and a very low view of the physical world in general. And it led some in the church to thinking that if our bodies don't matter, if they're this corrupt, horrible thing that we're going to try and get away from and in the end discard well, then it doesn't really matter what we do with them. And so they had this anything-goes approach to sex. So they thought, well, if our bodies don't matter, who cares? Just do what we like with them. That was their approach. But others thought that if our bodies are bad, then our physical desires and appetites must also be bad. And uh, they sought to curb those appetites among other things, through um, abstaining from sex. So the question to be addressed is, is sex bad? That is what the Corinthians are asking because of all these uh, cultural factors that are influencing them. How would our culture answer this question, is sex bad? Well, I think our culture might accuse Christians of having a very prudish, restrictive, and negative view of sex. Uh, as if all sexual desire is something to be ashamed of and repressed. That is a, a caricature of the Christian view. Uh, I think our culture would also say, it's my body to do what I like with. All sexual desire is, a, is an intrinsic part of who I am, and I should seek to fulfill it as long as I'm not hurting anyone. I think that would be a sort of general uh, view within our culture. So we've seen the, the first century Corinthian perspective. We've uh, seen the, uh, our uh, 21st century Australian or Western perspective. But what does Paul have to say on this? What is the, the Christian perspective? Well, Paul quotes the Corinthians when he says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's not Paul saying that. This is what they've said. He's quoting them. Uh, later on, though, Paul does affirm Uh, that this is true in the sense that it's okay to be celibate. Uh, In our context, the young person who is getting grief from his or her friends for being a virgin really needs to hear this. It is okay to be celibate. There's nothing wrong with it. It's normal. Uh, 
then Paul talks about the proper context for sex, which is marriage between one man and one woman. So sex is a good gift from God, but it's powerful. And if this gift is misused, it can destroy lives. Sex is meant to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. In other words, sex and commitment are supposed to go together. Uh, that in itself is now countercultural. What Paul said next is or was extremely countercultural in the Corinthian culture. Verses 3 to 4 The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. So the husband and wife have a duty to each other. They don't have authorities over their own bodies, but yield them to one another. Now, if you read only the first part of that verse, verse 4, it sounds terrible. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Now, if you stop there, you'd say, well, what kind of misogynistic nonsense is that? But it continues in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. There is absolute equality between the husband and the wife. The injunction is to them both to give of themselves to each other. In the Greco-Roman world, uh, men used their, and I use the word used advisedly, men used their wives to produce children, and they used prostitutes and slaves for pleasure. That was the normal way of doing things in the Greco-Roman world. Sexual relations within marriage were one-sided, unloving, unfaithful, and from a male perspective, it was all about what you could get rather than what you could give. The Christian view of marriage and sex turned all of that on its head. And then verse 5 says, Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And this doesn't mean that a husband or wife can demand sex whenever they feel like it, uh, regardless of how their spouse is feeling. That would be selfish and unloving. But remember that some were abstaining from sex because they thought sex itself was bad. And that may have led believing husbands or wives uh, to depriving their unbelieving spouses. Kind of like, hello, darling, I've become a Christian. Sex is bad. We're not doing that anymore. I mean, that's not going to go down well, and it's not a good strategy for leading your spouse to Christ. So Paul says, because that was happening, Paul says, don't deprive one another, except by mutual agreement to devote yourself to prayer for a limited period. Uh, one of the great privileges of marriage is that you get to pray together. And it's wonderful because it draws you closer to one another and to God at the same time. Uh, but you don't have to abstain in order to pray together. I need to make that clear. I don't want to put anyone else off, put, put anyone off prayer. But the, the question, is sex bad? It, um, the answer from Paul is, no, it's not bad. It's a good gift from God. 
to be enjoyed within the context of a loving, faithful, and equal marriage. The next question, is it better to remain single? Why was that being asked? Well, it could be that because some thought that sex is bad, well, it's better just not to get married at all. Uh, So that's probably part of it. But there's another clue in verse 26, which says, because of the present crisis, and the NRSV translation says, because of the impending crisis. So it reads, because of the impending crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is, as he is in this context, is uh, means single. So it seems that they were expecting some hard times. Now, we can't be sure, but it's likely that this has to do with Jesus' predictions in Matthew 24. I'll just read you a little extract. It says, uh, nation, this is Jesus speaking, a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. If you can remember back to when we were studying Matthew, that chapter in uh, Matthew 25, it has a future context for us, but for the Corinthians, a lot of what Matthew said, or for, for, uh, for, for Jesus' audience, a lot of what Matthew said was fulfilled when uh, the Romans completely destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. That was about 15 years after this letter was written. Uh, so it could be that this is what Paul has in mind, the, these words of Jesus. But whether Paul is referring to this or to something else, the fact remains that the Corinthians were anticipating some kind of crisis. Now, if you're single, unmarried, no kids, and you believe that there's some terrifying reality just over the horizon, you may well think twice about getting married because there are a great many situations which are uh, more difficult and pain, more painful when we have a family to care for. You know, you ask any Ukrainian about that. Uh, they, you know, th- this idea that something terrible is about to happen could have put people off uh, getting married. So that's the context of the Corinthian question. Is it better to remain single? Well, how would our culture answer that question? Well, firstly, I think it's fair to say that our culture is obsessed with relationships. You know, you look at the content of uh, magazines, you you look at the kind of TV shows that are out there, uh, you look at the the, the films, uh, and you see the extent of it. I mean, despite the dramatic events that are occurring in the world uh, this year, um, the Johnny Depp and Megan Hurd trial is one of the biggest trending uh, news stories, and that's because it's all about a relationship. People are obsessed with relationships. Now, many people find it difficult to imagine that anyone can be truly satisfied without being in a romantic sexual relationship. Uh, there's an undercurrent in our culture that denigrates singleness, uh, and even more so, singleness combined with celibacy. So I've not seen the film, uh, I'm sure some of you have, but I've not seen the film The 40-Year-Old Virgin, but uh, I'm familiar with the plot line, and that encapsulates this way of thinking. Our culture would say that uh, life without sex is dull, frustrating, and unfulfilling. Some would say 
it's okay to be single as long as you can still be sexually active. Well, Jesus was never married. Jesus was never married. He never had a sexual relationship. And yet, he was the most complete person, the most complete human being who ever lived. He was the most fulfilled person who ever lived. So we shouldn't believe the lie that we need to be in a romantic or a sexual relationship in order to be fulfilled. Human beings, as I was saying to the children earlier, we are created for relationships. We need to have relationships, but they can be platonic. They can be good, solid friendships. They don't need to be sexual in nature for us to be fulfilled as human beings. Our uh, our culture often sees singleness as a problem to be solved. Single people can find themselves subjected to all kinds of uh, meddling and endless matchmaking from well-meaning friends, whether they want to be in a relationship or not. But Paul doesn't see singleness as a problem. He doesn't see it as a problem. In verse 7, he says, I wish that all of you were as I am, that's single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift. Another has that gift. So marriage is a gift from God. And singleness is a gift from God. One state of being is not superior to the other. And both allow us to contribute to God's kingdom in different ways. In verse 8, Paul says, Now to the unmarried and the widows, widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. It is good to stay unmarried. In other words, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with staying unmarried. As we've already seen, uh, Jesus was unmarried. Uh, Singleness should never be seen as a stigma within the church. And the church should be a place where people, both married and unmarried, can find genuine, loving, platonic, life-giving, fulfilling relationships. So in answer to the question, is it better to remain single? Paul is basically saying it's not better and it's not worse. It's a matter of personal choice. But to the Corinthians, to their specific situation, Paul is saying, look, if you're staying single because you think that sex is bad, well, maybe rethink that one. The final question from the Corinthians, at least of those that we're looking at today, seems to be along the lines of, should believers divorce their unbelieving spouses? And why this question? Well, many, or at least some of the Corinthian believers, were married to unbelievers. Their spouses were still pagans. That could create some tension. It was difficult. But there was more to it than that. The uh, Corinthians may have believed that the unbelief of one somehow cancelled out the belief of the other one, as if a believer could somehow be contaminated by their unbelieving spouse. And then we add to that that they were living in a society where serial divorce was commonplace. So all those factors arose, uh, led to, the, to this question. Should a believer divorce their unbelieving spouse? So what would our culture say about this? Well, as for Christians being married to non-Christians, probably not very much. I think our culture would say, ah, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Just, just marry who you like. It doesn't matter. Personally, I, I, and I think there's uh, you know, biblical support for this, I think there are uh, three 
areas of compatibility that we need to consider if we're going to uh, think about spending our whole lives with someone. Uh, the first area is physical compatibility. You know, it's not unreasonable to want to find our spouse physically attractive. That's not the most important thing, but I think it is a factor. Uh, secondly is um, social compatibility. Do we get on well together? Can we have fun together? Um, do we communicate well together? Social compatibility. And the third area of compatibility uh, is spiritual compatibility. Do we share the same beliefs and values? Can we pray together? Now, that's not always going to be the case. Some of these Corinthians, they're married to those that aren't Christian. Um, that doesn't mean that they can't have good marriages, uh, but it is, it is a factor, that spiritual compatibility. And then getting back to the question, should uh, Corinthians, should um, believers divorce their unbelieving spouses? Well, uh, it's worth saying that we too live in a culture where divorce is commonplace. Now, before I go on, it's important to say that there are legitimate grounds for divorce, uh, grounds that we find in Scripture, but I don't think that Scripture is exhaustive on this. So um, adultery, abandonment, um, mental or physical abuse, any kind of uh, abuse. And Christians sometimes get divorced for other reasons too. Now, divorce is always a tragedy. Divorce is always a tragedy. And it always involves sin by one uh, or both parties. But let's not be too quick to point the finger. We all sin. And we all make a mess of things from time to time. And, you know, these guidelines that Paul gives us, the guidelines for uh, marriages and relationships, yes, within any church, you, you know, you're going to have a lot of people, probably the vast majority, who haven't managed to follow this their whole lives. Well, we know that in Christ we can be forgiven. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we recognize, okay, we, I've got this wrong in the past, we can, you know, we can turn to Christ and, and just say, look, I'm sorry. And he forgives us. So we don't want to be pointing the finger. We have to recognize that, yes, God does give us boundaries. God does give us guidelines. And for our own benefit and for the benefit of those around us, we want to stay within those guidelines. But we also need to recognize that life is not as neat and tidy as we might like it to be. And it is not our place to judge people who have been divorced because every situation is different and we have not been in that other person's shoes. And as I say, uh, we can all seek forgiveness from a loving God who will forgive us. That said, we live in a culture where divorce is almost the default option for any and every problem within a marriage. Um, with a prenuptial agreement, you can, you can uh, prepare for divorce before you're even married. I mean, how romantic. When a non-Christian friend of mine was getting divorced, I asked him how he felt, and he shrugged his shoulders. He said, well, all relationships run their course. Nothing's forever. I think our culture gives up too easily on marriage and has a pessimistic view of its chances 
of success. So what did Paul say about this question? Should believers divorce their unbelieving spouses? Well, firstly, Paul makes it clear that divorce is not an option that we should readily turn to. And actually, if there's genuine repentance, genuine repentance, any problem within marriage can potentially be overcome. Not necessarily the case, but there are instances where so almost any problem has been overcome in marriage. So Paul is saying, you know, divorce is not an option that we should readily turn to. Verse 10, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Paul then speaks specifically to their situation. He says, to the rest I say this, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So if a Christian is married to an unbeliever, unless that unbeliever ups and leaves, and assuming there's no abuse or uh, adultery or anything like that, the Christian should stay with them and love them and endeavor to make that relationship work, to make that marriage as good as it can possibly be. Paul continues, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. So rather than the unbeliever contaminating the Christian, which is what the Corinthians were worried about, it's actually the other way around. By being married to a Christian, the unbeliever is brought into some kind of connection with the Lord. Now this doesn't mean that they're automatically saved but they are brought into some kind of relationship with the Lord, and that may well lead to them being saved. So there's so much uh, we can learn, uh, I think, from 1 Corinthians 7 about marriage and singleness and relationships. Uh, we've just scratched the surface today. There's, uh, there's uh, at least a dozen sermons in there, hundreds of sermons in there. But I think there are four things that we can take away from this today. Firstly, the prevailing culture, be it first century Corinth or the Royal Marines or Western culture in general, will always have a lot to say about relationships. And Christianity will invariably, no matter what time and place, will invariably have something different to say about relationships. Christianity is counter-cultural. That's the first thing. Secondly, sex is a good gift from God to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. Thirdly, both marriage and singleness can be a calling and a means to serving God and building his kingdom. And fourthly, marriage is a lifelong commitment. It's for keeps. And we should do all we can to preserve, uphold, and honor it. So Paul's relationship Advice, the Bible's relationship advice is countercultural, uh, but it is the most fulfilling, life giving, and virtuous approach to marriage and singleness that there is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, thank you that you that you do give us boundaries and borders and 
you you guide us in terms of what relationships should look like. And Father, we pray that you will, I mean, we recognize that a lot of, a lot of this is very countercultural, and we, we pray that you will help us to see things as you see them. And we pray that more and more we'll be able to bring our lives in line with your will. Father, we recognize that I would dare to say every single one of us here has failed in this area in one way or another. We thank you that we can uh, come to you for forgiveness. And we pray that you will help us to build uh, good, wholesome, life-giving relationships, both within marriage and within singleness and with, with all the relationships that exist across the church. We pray that you will help us to, to be mutually supportive and loving and uh, just to nurture one another and to build one another up. And we pray that this will be a place where people can really feel at home no matter what their uh, age or stage of life. Father, help us in this area. Help us to honor you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.